Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we come to you now and we give you thanks for this opportunity to look into your word. Thank you for Andrew. We pray your blessing on him as he communicates with us what you've shared with him. Give him clear thoughts and the ability to share what he has. And we give you thanks for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Capernaum by the sea. By the time this place showed up in the third scripture for this week's lectionary, I realized I needed to look up where it was. I'd never noticed this name, never paid attention to this place, never put Capernaum into the plot line of Jesus' life. Turns out to be quite an interesting place, mostly because it's so boring. Capernaum is where Jesus hung out his shingle and set up his work in a synagogue that probably looked a whole lot like this one. This one is Capernaum, built in the 3rd to 4th century. So Jesus' synagogue probably would have been a little bit older, a little bit smaller, but more or less built along the same lines. Capernaum is where Jesus worked, where Jesus was a rabbi and a healer, a preacher who edged into the role of prophet. We are used to hearing all about Nazareth, where Jesus was born and grew up. But it turns out that that is not where Jesus lived out most of his working life, his career, probably between the ages of 20 and 30, that decade when he was out speaking, teaching, being a rabbi. It's where Jesus performed the lion's share of his healings, where he did most of his talking, was there at the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, not way up in the hills in the boonies of Nazareth. As you can see, there was a fair bit of population around the sea. There was a lot of fish there. It was a lot of trade. It was a relatively urbanized area. And Capernaum wasn't the only town where Jesus was active. As we heard from the scripture passage today, it is nearby Capernaum where Jesus goes to recruit his disciples calling them from the Sea of Galilee to be fishers of men instead of fishers of fish. Capernaum neither possesses the brilliant hope and clarity of Bethlehem, where Jesus was born with its stories of flocks of angels and hosts of sheep and the occasional magi from the east, Nor does Capernaum have the low lows of Jerusalem with its corrupt leaders and its shouting crowds, its terror and high drama. We focus so much on the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and the death of Jesus in Judea, all of which happens down there in the south, that I included, we don't think very much about Capernaum, where Jesus actually lived and worked for probably at least a decade. Capernaum is the mundane world. Capernaum is everyday life. People trying to figure out how they, how to live their lives. The gray of the everyday. 
It's funny how the weather works its way into your head over the course of a week. And it's been a gray week. I think if we opened those blinds, it wouldn't actually change the quality of the light in here one bit. For Capernaum, for this middle part of life, for these days when nothing particularly exciting is going on, when nothing seems to change week after week, year after year, Capernaum where Jesus has this one message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. To repent means to turn, to turn away, or at least that's how it was understood in Jewish culture at the time. Turn away from the way things have been. Turn away from the gray of the everyday life. Don't believe what Capernaum has to say. Because here's what Capernaum says to us. Or at least here's what the everyday world says to me. That normal is in fact normal. That what I experience as unchanging and given day in and day out is actually what is normal for people. When, of course, the moment we take a, a chance to step out of our own lives and our own perspectives, we know that our everyday lives are nothing like normal for the broad scope of human history and experience. Capernaum tells us that stability is stable, that nothing is going to change because nothing has for a while, that generation after generation there will just be the gray ambiguity of everyday life. To which Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This call to repentance, this call to the kingdom, is the light shining in the darkness, the promise of joy and liberty from Isaiah 9 that breaks over the clouds that cover the city. Isaiah 9 describes a place, a very specific place, north of the Sea of Galilee. And says that there the times have been rough, the people have been oppressed, God has been hard on the land, but not forever. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This great light is understood by the writer of the Gospel of Matthew to be Jesus coming to preach this message, this message of turning away from the mundanity of everyday life and realizing that, in fact, the place where you're living, the times when you're living, the people around you are exceptional, are exciting, are at the very cusp of world-altering change. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming near. Repenting is not just about turning away from the bad stuff. If you try turning away from bad stuff, if you have a for instance, uh, an addiction, a sin, a habit, a system, a way of life that is causing problems. You can't just 
stop. Cut it off. If you don't put anything in its place, then the very thing you seek to get rid of will grow back, fight back, flourish in the gap that you've left for it. You have to replace it with something. This is something that makes sense intuitively. Some of you are probably nodding as I say this, but it also turns out to be backed by a lot of solid research, especially research that's been conducted on addiction. When people stop an addictive behavior, if they don't fill that time in with something, it will come right back. It's time-consuming to be an addict. It's time-consuming to be enveloped in sin no matter how it catches us. It takes a lot of hours out of the day. Imagine a, a person having an affair or struggling with a gambling addiction. All of the hours spent planning, getting your ducks in a row, making sure you have the money, the time, obsessing, being absent from your life, from home and public community, Secrecy, lies, deceit all take a terrible toll. And in the everyday moral ambiguity, the grayness of Capernaum, it seems like everybody's got one of these. Everybody's got some monkey on their back, some grayness in their life, some thing that consumes so much of their time and energy that they find they have little left for those that they wish to love in their lives. So this call of Jesus to repentance better come with something very time-consuming and important and exciting to fill in the gap. Well, there's the second half of the sentence. For the kingdom of heaven is coming near. This kingdom of heaven that is supposed to fill in the hole in our life left behind when we get rid of the stuff that we hate, the stuff that we know is holding us down. This kingdom of heaven must be exciting, must be engaging, must be more fun than the addictions, obsessions, and sins that it replaces. And I think this is part of why Paul is so adamant in the passage we read today, that the church be unified. That we're all in the same boat together. Paul says, now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He really pulls out the hardest language he can. That all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. He doesn't mention which faction is supposed to stop believing what or who is supposed to start behaving in a different way. He, he certainly lambasts people for their beliefs and their behaviors elsewhere. But here in this call for unity, Paul's not taking any sides. The call for unity is unity for unity's sake, saying you guys have got to understand that you are in it together. He wants the factions of the, in the church to disappear, the ones who say, you know, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Paul, I belong to Christ. He wants those factions to disappear 
For Christians to understand that they belong together even though their perspectives differ, because that's the only way that the church is going to be exciting enough, engaging enough, broad enough, strong enough to be what God needs it to be, a tool for our salvation, a gift to us that can fill in those hollow parts of our lives. Bringing vulnerable people through the gray, shifting seas of Galilee, through the vague, exhausting, everyday life of Capernaum, safely in the storm. If you're in a boat, who jumps overboard just because they disagree with the rower sitting next to them. This is God's vision for the healing of Capernaum. This is the light the prophet Isaiah saw shining in the darkness. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Turn away, but more importantly even, turn towards. Alone we may have very little chance of shaking ourselves free from this story told us by the everyday life. The story that says everything's going to be the same, nothing's going to change, nothing's going to be exciting. But together, with the presence of the Spirit, with the fire of the love that we have for one another, as our guide, together we can walk purposely in the light knowing that we live in momentous times and alongside momentous people. Psalm 27 uses these words that root themselves so deeply in our minds. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I will dedicate myself to God and God's house. And in return, the psalm promises that we will be accepted. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger, you who have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. Turning away is an act of rejection. But when we understand that repentance isn't just about turning away, it's about turning towards something. It's got to be about turning towards something, otherwise it'll never last. Then that means that repentance is fundamentally an act of acceptance. An act of accepting the people sitting in church next to us, of accepting radically our neighbors, our family, our enemies. And most fundamentally, an act which, when done properly, of accepting one another, also inevitably carries with it our acceptance of God and God's acceptance of us. I didn't know that repentance could look like a hug. But I am convinced fundamentally that unless we fill the holes in our lives with wholesome relationships, we will never be ready for the kingdom of heaven as it draws near. Unfortunately, Capernaum didn't listen to Jesus. Capernaum never does, really. 
The mundane world always believes its own lies, starting with the belief that the world is mundane. So much later on in the same Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel which quoted Isaiah 9, saying that a great light has come to Capernaum across the Sea of Galilee. Much later on in chapter 11, Matthew says, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to the grave. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. More bearable for one of the famously sinful cities whose hostility, fear of the foreigner, caused God to burn the whole place to the ground. More bearable for Sodom than Capernaum on the day of judgment. Let that sink in when you feel the grayness of the world, the grayness of low expectations and even lower activity levels closing in around you. Remember that In an unrepentant mundanity lies destruction untold. The judgment of God, of history, and of our own hearts who yearn for something more, yearn for something exciting, yearn for a place of acceptance, something to turn to that galvanizes us, feeds us, rather than withering us away in silence. The ordinary world is a gray and messy place. There's no doubt about that. And people do struggle with their, all of us do struggle with our own problems. That much is true. So I have great empathy for the people of Capernaum who stayed on the fence about Jesus despite witnessing miracle after miracle. Charlatans performed miracles too in those days. And then, as today, it's hard to know what to think and who to trust sometimes. Try reading the news. But what Jesus offered, and what at least a few in Capernaum accepted, those who followed him, was one small gram of certainty upon which we can build a beam of light to give clarity in the gloom, even when things seem completely vague and very difficult to pin down that the kingdom of heaven is coming and that in turning away from sin and towards one another, we can defeat hate and live in unity. This sermon isn't a perfect fit for every place or everyone. There are places 
historically speaking, where people have lived relatively unchanged generation after generation, where the lies of Capernaum have been more true. I wouldn't preach this sermon literally anywhere, but I preach it here. Because unchanging generation after generation does not describe this place or these times. Like Jesus' day, like first century Galilee, we are witnessing the rise and fall of global superpowers, rapid urbanization, environmental crisis brought on by the powers, the super, the very superpowers that thrash in their death throes. We are living in days all too similar to the Capernaum of Jesus' time. And so when we believe that our world will not change, that great things are not coming, when we believe the lies of the everyday world, we are wrong. We are not heeding Christ who calls us to open up our eyes and to see the need to repent in order to cleave closely to that hope of the kingdom of God which has come near.